Thank you so much, Dr. Graham. This morning, we're going to be looking at uh, the fourth question that we ask in our God and Religion course of every belief system. What is real? How does this belief system understand reality? Once we can answer that, we ask the question, what is true? How does this belief system understand knowledge? How can it know what reality is? Once we understand that, we ask the question, what is human? If this is what reality is, if this is how we know, how does humanity fit into that? How does humanity fit with each other? And then finally, we ask this last question, what is right? What is our responsibility? What should we do in light of reality? Uh, every chapel we've had this semester, Worldview Theology Chapel, uh, if you've noticed or not, it's been a panel discussion. Our uh, discussion on truth involved our behavioral science faculty talking about the relationship between Christianity and science. Our discussion of what is real involved our faculty from intercultural studies uh, looking at understanding reality through both Hinduism and Islam. Our discussion on humanity was an interdisciplinary committee uh, looking at things like human fairness, human justice, human decency, and how we apply that to issues such as racism and sexism. Uh, so today, we're not going to have a faculty panel for our last Worldview Theology channel to chapel. Today, I'm just going to preach. Uh, I'm not preaching because I think preaching is a better way at getting at ethics in discussion, but I am going to preach because I want to make a point about Christian ethics, and it's this. We derive our understanding of ethics in part from the authority of God's Word. The Bible as an authority for us in decision-making is something that is unique about Christian ethics. The Bible does not have this authority outside of the Christian faith, so the Bible is one of our distinctives of Christian moral reasoning. But when I talk about the authority of the Bible, I'm really talking about the authority of God speaking to us through the Bible by the Holy Spirit. So as we begin this morning... I want to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us, and I want to invite you to listen to the Spirit of God as we go through God's Word. This morning, I'm going to look at the very first example of moral reasoning in the Bible, which is also the very first theology discussion in the Bible, which is also the story of the very first human sin in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3. And I'll tell you, I wrestled at times with how to approach the story in Genesis 3. I came up with three separate titles for my sermon, each one taking me in a different direction. The first title was just going to be When Moral Reasoning Goes Bad. But I decided to choose a different title than that. My second title was When Satan Gets It Right. But I decided that was way too open to misinterpretation. So I've chosen a third title here, and this is the title of my message for this morning, How to Sin Like a Human. How to Sin Like a Human. Uh, before the internet, the biggest source of information for me as a teenager on sin was from the church. Because all the things I knew about sin came from my peer group in Kentucky, and we had a limited knowledge base. It was when we had special speakers come to us at church or we had ministers preach on different aspects of sin and they would explain to us what God had called them from. They would tell us about the lifestyle they used to have. Sometimes there I would sit there and listen and think, wow, I didn't know someone could do that. I didn't know that was possible. Write that down. That's a new kind of sin. I learned how to sin from the church because the internet wasn't invented yet. And all I had was my limited experience. 
This morning, I want to hit that head on. We're going to talk about how to sin. How does the story of the first sin in the Bible actually teach us about how humans sin? We're going to begin here, Genesis chapter 1, beginning at verse number 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may, not, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. This chapter begins by introducing the serpent as the craftiest of all of God's creatures. Now, the Bible in Genesis 3 does not identify the serpent with Satan. That's an identification that's made much later uh, in the church. But it does identify the serpent with craftiness. And the Hebrew word for crafty is not a negative word necessarily. It's a neutral word. In some places, we translate the word not crafty. We translate it shrewd or we translate it clever. And the difference is this. It's about how you use your wits. If I use my wits to get myself out of danger, you would say that I was clever. If I use my wits to manipulate you into doing something, you would say I was crafty. And how do we see the serpent in the story? Right away, he's not clever, he's crafty. That's a translation, the choice that people make, it's a good one. The serpent is craftier than any of God's creatures. Another reason the word here is used, and it's because in Hebrew, the word for crafty also sounds like the word for naked. And it kind of gives you a clue as to where this story is headed. So the serpent is the craftiest of all of God's creatures. And the serpent comes to Eve, and the question the serpent asked Eve is this. He says to her, did God really say you couldn't eat from any fruit in this garden? Now, the command in question actually comes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, the previous chapter. And if you read that chapter, here's what actually happens. God creates a garden. God puts man in the garden, and God says to man, I have given you Every tree in the garden for your use, you may eat of all the fruit that is on any tree. Just don't eat the fruit of this tree because that tree will kill you. That's the actual command. The command that God gives to Adam is put in the midst of God's gifts to Adam. I'm giving you everything. I'm just asking you not to eat this one thing. And God even says, why? Why shouldn't you eat it? Because when you do, it's going to kill you. So Satan comes to Eve, and Satan simply says this, has God really said that you can't eat from any fruit in any tree in this garden? And in that one question, Satan treats God not as a benevolent benefactor, but he treats God as an overpowering oppressor. How I many sometimes the way we begin, because this is the first theology discussion in the Bible, has God really said? How I many sometimes the way we ask the question is already predetermining the answer? Now, we might not read the story in this way, but I'll tell you the way a lot of us read the story. We make a similar mistake. A lot of us read the story of the Garden of Eden like this. God created a garden. He put Adam and Eve in the midst of the garden, and he put one tree in the garden, and he said to them, don't touch that tree, don't eat that tree, don't even look in the direction of that tree, and it almost makes God feel like he's setting Adam and Eve up. Like saying to a three-year-old, here's cookies, I'm going to put it in reach of you, but you better not eat it, now I'm going to turn my back. How many of you have ever read the story of the Garden of Eden and that's what you thought? Sounds like God is setting Adam and Eve up to fail. 
Let me give you another way of reading this story by an illustration. Let's imagine that I had some friends who were getting married, and they were rich. And they asked me to house set for them while they went on their honeymoon. They're going to move into this house. It's a beautiful house. One of them's already set it up. They asked me to house set for them. I actually had a friend that happened to them. She worked for a rich doctor in California. He decided to go to Europe, asked her to house set for him for a couple weeks, loved it so much, decided to stay in Europe for the next seven years and let her live there rent-free in a mansion. That's nice work if you can get it. So my friend said to me, we want you to house set for us. We're going to be gone for two weeks. Now, when we ask you to set for us in this house, I want you to know that everything in the house is for you. You can sleep in the bed. You can use our big screen TV. We have both a PlayStation 4 and an Xbox One. You can play with them. We have a jacuzzi in the back. You can use that. We have refrigerators and pantries stocked with food. You can have anything that you want. There's just one thing we ask. We have saved the top of our wedding cake so that we can share it on our one-year anniversary, and we've put that in the back of our freezer. Would you just not eat that wedding cake? That's the only thing we're asking. So I say, okay, that's fine. So I enjoy their house. I play their PlayStation 4. I play their Xbox One. PlayStation 4 is better. I use their jacuzzi. I enjoy everything in their house. Yeah, that was an ad. I enjoy everything in their house. I eat all the food in the pantry, all the food in the refrigerator. You look at me, you can believe that. The day comes towards the end of that two-week period. I've been spending late nights playing games. Three o'clock in the morning, I just finished a great game. I decide, pick whatever game you think is great. That's what I played. I go to the refrigerator, I'm hungry. Have you ever played too long and suddenly you realize you forgot to eat? I'm hungry. I go to the refrigerator. I open it up, I'm tired, my brain isn't working right, the only thing I can find in there is the top of that wedding cake, and I think to myself, if I just take a bite, they won't notice. I take a bite, and it is good. I decide to take another bite, another bite, and before I realize what I've done, I've eaten the entire thing. How are my friends going to feel when they come back home? Were they setting me up to fail, or did I just violate their trust? When God set Adam and Eve in the garden, the garden didn't belong to them, it belonged to God. That was not their vacation spot, that was their workplace. God called Adam and Eve to tend the garden, to care for the garden. He gave them a piece of land he had created, and he said, I'm giving this to you, do for it what you should. Take care of it, be responsible for it, and I'm giving you everything in it for your use. You can have anything here that belongs to me, it can belong to you. I'm just asking one thing. Just don't eat from this one tree, because that tree will kill you. You can have the top of everything, just don't have the top of the wedding cake. And by the way, the top of the wedding cake is filled with poison. Was God setting them up, or was God providing for them? Let me give you another illustration. Dr. Graham, there's something under that chair right there. I want you to hand that to me. This came a freeing we had this morning. Who would like a donut? I'll tell you right now, we're going to be in trouble. Start right here. You guys are in the middle. Pass it on. Are you serious? Yeah. I'm going to go over here now. Because you ran. Right back here. 
And you came up? Now, I'm going to give you the last donut. I'm so sorry, Balcony, you had it coming. I'm going to give you the last donut. Here's what I'm asking. Will you throw this away when you're done? Okay. I just gave him a donut, but I gave one restriction. He's got to handle the trash once it's empty. Was I being generous or was I being cruel? The restriction is given in the midst of the gift. And I don't want you to miss this. The restriction is given in the midst of the gift. Now, some of you might say to me, yeah, but if you're going to bring donuts, bring them for everybody, buddy. How we approach the gift can determine how we interpret everything else. Satan says to Eve, did God really say you can't have any of the fruit in this garden? He's already putting God in the position of an oppressor. Now, Eve answers his question, but Eve answers the question by defending God in the spirit of the serpent's question. Here's what Eve says. No, no, he's told us we can eat from the fruit of the trees, but we can't eat from the tree that's right in the middle of the garden, and we can't even touch it or we will die. Now, Genesis 2 says nothing about touching the fruit, but the way that Eve tells the story, she's actually adding to God's command. And let me say this, this is sometimes the other side of legalism, is if we add to what God has said to make it harsh, it makes it easier for us to ignore the entire thing. That's the problem with sometimes the logic we use in the church, better safe than sorry. I mean, you've heard that before. God said this, but we're going to make it a little more harsh because better safe than sorry. That's the other problem with legalism. When you add to what God has said, you make it easier to ignore what God has said. So here's the first lesson I want to give you. If you want to learn how to sin like a human, focus on what is forbidden, not on what you've been given. You want to learn how to sin like a human? Focus on what is forbidden, not on what you've been given. Don't think of God's commands as a gift or given to you in the midst of a gift. Think of it as something that's holding you back. Be resentful, not grateful. That's the right attitude for sin. Be resentful, not grateful. Let's continue on here in the story. Genesis 3, verse 5. Or verse 4 here. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The serpent challenges the woman, and he says to her by challenging God, God did not give you this restriction for your good. He gave you this restriction out of his fear. God's not trying to protect you from death. You're not going to die. God's trying to hold you back from the knowledge that will make you like God. He questions God's motivation behind the law. He offers another reason for the command. God is holding them back from becoming just like him. And I want to highlight something about this. A lot of people have debated what it means to say the knowledge of good and evil. What does this tree actually represent in the story? Some argue that the knowledge represents sexual knowledge. So it's the idea that we sometimes use they knew someone in the biblical sense. 
I think that's a way too narrow way to read that. And it also sees sex as a negative when it's also another one of God's gifts. Others have made it too broad. And they, yeah, we can say amen, that's okay. That amen was strong, but we can say amen. Others, others could say the knowledge of good and evil represent everything. So knowing everything that is from good to evil, like A to Z, and they make this about omniscience, I think that's too broad. My favorite way of interpreting this is to simply say this. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil represented knowing good and evil, but by two different means. If woman and man consistently did not eat from the tree, then they would have consistently obeyed God and they would have gained the knowledge from obedience. They would have become mature. But if they ate from the tree, which is to say they disobeyed God, then they would have gained the knowledge of good and evil from disobedience. Rather than becoming mature, they would have become autonomous. And this is what I think the point is of the tree. Some people argue they could never know good and evil until they ate from the tree. I think that's silly. It's like saying I could never know what it means to be a faithful husband until I commit adultery. I don't learn faithfulness by committing adultery. I learn faithfulness by being faithful. When I commit adultery, it teaches me something else about faithfulness that I don't want to know. When Adam and Eve ate from the tree, they weren't becoming morally mature. They were becoming morally autonomous. They were choosing to decide for themselves what is good or evil rather than trusting God to make that decision. Let me say this. The woman eats from the fruit, and in fact, we're told that this way. She saw that the tree of the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. It was desirous for gaining wisdom. So she took it. She ate it. She passed it on to the man. Her motivations for eating the tree have sometimes been treated in the Bible as the basic motivations for sin itself. So there's been a lot of theological discussion about this. Some argue that because she desired wisdom, the root sin of everything is pride. She wanted to be wise like God. Pride is the basic sin for everyone. Others have argued because she saw the tree of the fruit of the tree was desirable, the root sin is coveting. Coveting is wanting what we should not have. That's where we get into trouble. Others have argued that it's three different things. She saw that the tree was good for food, what's sometimes been interpreted by what the Bible means as the lust of the flesh. She saw the tree was pleasing to the eye, the lust of the eyes. She saw it was desirous for gaining wisdom, the pride of life. It's taken from 1 John 2, 16 and 17. I'll say this, it works out a lot better in the English translation than it does in the Greek. But some people have argued that's what sin is. It's the desire to have. That's the lust of the flesh. Or the, that's the lust of the eyes. It's the desire to do. That's the lust of the flesh. Or it's the desire to be. That's the pride of life. What God has not given us. The desire to have what God hasn't given us, that's the lust of the eyes. I must possess this. The desire to do what God has not given us to do, that's the lust of the flesh. I must enjoy this. The desire to become what God has not called us to become, that's the pride of life. Now I'll say it works better in the English than the Greek, but however we interpret her motivations, what happens in this story is humanity makes a choice to become morally autonomous from God. They will decide good and evil for themselves. 
The woman takes the fruit, eats the fruit, passes it on to the man. And the immediate consequence for both is the man and the woman realize they are naked and they attempt to cover themselves up with leaves. The serpent promised they would have a knowledge that would make them like God, but instead they receive the knowledge that they're not at all like God. Understand this nakedness here goes back to what it means to be a creation of God. Humanity was created to be in the image of God. It meant that we were intended to reflect God's authority and his character over the rest of creation, but by trusting the serpent over God, by trusting the serpent's promise they could become God, rather than trusting God to be his reflection, they failed miserably, and all they realized was that they were naked. Now, when it says they were naked, I don't mean by this simply they were embarrassed at being nude. You know, how many of you would say that if I woke up in a room and I was naked and everyone else was dressed, I would feel vulnerable? There's an embarrassment, right? But there's also a feeling of vulnerability that goes a little bit further than that. When they realized they were naked, it wasn't simply they were embarrassed. They were vulnerable. They tried to cover up because they felt, and this is the way I interpret this, not an embarrassment at being naked. What they felt for the first time was a shame at being who they are. They felt a shame at being who they are. They chose autonomy over maturity, and now they had to learn how to live with that choice. Understand, this is something that a lot of times we get wrong about freedom. We always interpret freedom as if it's freedom from something. You've been set free from this. Woohoo, we're free. But freedom isn't fully freedom if it's only from something. Freedom is only fully freedom when it's for something. Freedom that's just from something isn't done yet because freedom is only a means to an end. The end is whatever freedom's for. We are freed in Christ so that we can have the freedom to mature into the person God created us to be. The point of our freedom is maturity. When we exercise our freedom away from God, then we're really abandoning the freedom to become like God. And the freedom to become like God is the only freedom that's actually free. The freedom to become like God is the only freedom that's actually free. If we exercise our freedom away from God, what we're really doing is giving up our freedom. So this brings me to lesson two. How do you sin like a human? Choose moral autonomy over moral maturity. Make it about what you want to do rather than who you should become. Choose moral autonomy over moral maturity. Make it about what you want to do rather than who you should become. Make it about your rights. Don't make it about what is right. Let me say this, a lot of times we get in debates about what to do, and the answer that people fall back on is, I have the right to do this. That's not what we're asking. That's not the question. We're not asking what you have the right to do, we're asking what's the right thing to do. If the only answer you have to a behavior is it's my right, you're about autonomy, you're not about maturity. Don't focus on what you want to do, focus on who you should become. Let's continue on here. Genesis 3, verse 8. We're going to end with this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, Where are you? He answered, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. When man and woman heard the sound of God in the garden, their first response was to hide from God so that God, for the first time ever, had to call out to humanity. You know, the only reason you call someone is because you're not with them. He had to call out to humanity. And when he called out, humanity's answer was what? We are afraid because we're naked. They were literally naked and afraid. Not only... Does shame, yeah, I get the reference. Not only does shame result from disobedience, another result of disobedience is fear. Another result of disobedience is fear because here's what happens. When we put distance between our will and God's will, we also put distance between God and us. When we put distance between our will and God's will, we also put distance between God and us. For the first time, humanity had a reason to be ashamed and fearful before God. For the first time, humanity had a reason to be ashamed and fearful before God. So God responds to this with a two-part question, and he asks them uh, right next to each other, who told you you were naked? And another way of putting that question is this, who made you feel vulnerable? Who made you feel vulnerable? And the second question Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Which is another way of simply saying, did you disobey me? And what is man's answer to God? It's immediately to blame someone else. Here's what he says. The woman gave it to me who you put here in the garden. Here I am just minding my own business and you give me this woman and she leads me into sin. I don't know if he's blaming the woman. I don't know if he's blaming God. I know for sure he's not blaming himself. And how many know that sometimes when we read this story, we also blame the woman? Few of you may have actually been uncomfortable with this story because of how this story has been used against women. Let me tell you this. The story tells us that man was with woman when she ate the fruit. And when the serpent speaks to woman, he uses the plural you in the Hebrew because he's speaking to both of them. Here's the thing, when we make this story Eve's fault and not Adam's, that's not an interpretation of the fall, that's actually a result of the fall. We're doing the same thing Adam did. We're blaming it on someone else. Sometimes we not only blame each other, we also blame God because God is big enough to get the blame for anything and everything. Still just another way of avoiding having to take responsibility for our own actions. Let me give you a secret to life that you can use. The world is so interconnected, and we are all so fallible, there is always someone else you can find to blame. The world is so interconnected, and we are so fallible, there will always be someone else you can find to blame. You don't have to search hard to find someone else to blame if you want to. You can spend your life coming up with reasons for why it was somebody else's fault. And by the time you're done, you will not have taken any of the blame, and you will be free from that. You'll be naked and alone, but you will be free. That's an important thing to realize. When we put distance between our will and God's will, 
it doesn't just put distance between us and God, it also puts distance between one another. Because when my response to God is shame and fear, my response to my peers is blame and rejection. When my response to God is fame and sheer, fame, she, uh, shame and fear, my response to each other is blame and rejection. When I don't feel the grace of God, then I can't show his grace to others. When I don't feel the grace of God, I can't show his grace to others. So it brings us to our third point, and it's simply this. You want to learn how to sin like a human, turn on God and then on everyone else. Make it their fault, not your fault. Turn on God and then on everyone else. Make it their fault, not your fault. How many of you say these are really unhelpful points? I don't want to know how to sin like a human. I want to know how to not sin like a Christian. Well, let's just reverse each one of these points. Next slide. Here's what we're going to end with, how to not sin like a Christian. Number one, focus on what you've been given, not on what is forbidden. Learn to be grateful, not resentful. When we live in an attitude of gratitude, all that is is a recognition of grace. We live in a world that is filled with grace, and whatever restriction we have in that world, we understand is for our good. Live in a world of grace. Make it about what you've been given, not what's forbidden. Number two, choose maturity. Don't settle for autonomy. Choose maturity. Don't settle for autonomy. Make it about who you should become, not about what you want to do right now. I have a son who's two years old. His two favorite words in the world are right now. He says it to us all the time. I want snacks. We'll get snacks for you right now. I want to go to the zoo. The zoo's closed. It's 11 o'clock at night. Right now! He says that to us all the time. And I'll tell you, in my own heart, I hear myself saying that all the time myself. It's not about what we want right now. It's about who we should become. And let me give you a secret to maturity. Here's the secret. When you are becoming the person you should be, then you can do whatever you want because it will always be the right thing. When you are becoming the person you should be, then you can do whatever you want because it will be the right thing. If you choose maturity instead of autonomy, then you'll actually find freedom. Let the grace of God free you to be the person you should be because that's the only freedom that's truly free, and that's where God's grace is meant to take us. Last point, turn to God and accept his grace by confession and repentance. Be willing not just to take the blame, be willing to turn it over to God in repentance. Then show that same grace to others. Show that same grace to others. Rather than casting blame, accept his grace through confession, repentance, because when we learn to live in grace, that's when we become graceful people. When we learn to live in grace, that's when we become graceful people. And let me just say this last thing. That's what Christian maturity actually looks like. It looks like a life of love. Christian maturity looks like a life of love because it's a life filled with grace. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the incredible love that you have for us. God, I want to thank you for your gifts. 
I want to thank you for the things that we have that we don't deserve. Most of all, salvation. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us to have a heart filled with grace. That we would see our obedience to you as an act of love because you first loved us. That we would choose to become the people you've called us to be because therein lies our freedom. And that we would be people so filled with grace, that's all we ever show to other people. Help us to be like Jesus. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. The altars are open. You are free to go.